Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. Oh baby, we are in for a treat because I'm going to learn about as much as you guys are because Renee Brejolet and that I needed some help in understanding how to pronounce her name but think Chick-fil-A. So Renee Brejolet came to us through Cherie DeMeo who has also been on this podcast, so go back to yeah, her great, episode. Great episode. Yeah, it was a great one. And uh, Cherie doesn't give us any um, false leads. We've, we've got a powerhouse on our hands right here with Renee. So this is going to be fun. Thank you for joining us. So Renee, as we always do, the scenario is a heartbeat question, but in this instance, you are filling up that Sea Ray boat of yours that you've wanted for a long time at the Ocean Isle Marina. And somebody is at the marina and they realize, they recognize the boat, but they recognize you even more. And they start talking about you. Hey, that's Renee Brejolet. They don't understand that you can overhear and understand everything that they're saying about you. But what would you want somebody to say about you? I think more than anything that I am an inspiration. I make them want to be better, do better, want to want them to see that if I can, they can too. Hmm. <laughs> I like that. And and before we go into your story and background, you were talking a little bit beforehand when we were talking about this scene of how you walk with a limp mm-hmm. and and that kind of perception and perspective. So could you talk a little bit about that before we go into the story? Yeah, sure. Um, in two thousand eight. I was diagnosed with a brain tumor the size of my husband's fist. Wow. It was huge. Um, I walked into a room. Um, as they got me out of the MRI machine, they said, <clears throat> we want to see you. And I was like, oh, this can't be good. Right. And I go into a room with my husband, and there's three big um, TV screens with different views of it. And... Um, I thought that I had Alzheimer's or my husband thought MS. He didn't tell me that, but, you know, we Mm. Google symptoms and uh, headaches, fatigue, all that. But I looked at it. I've been called a fix-it person my whole life. I looked at it and thought, it's not Alzheimer's. They can fix that. (laughs) So I immediately went into that mindset, and my husband went to his knees Mm. because his mother died with a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. And that had kind of left my mind at that point. So from that point, they did um, extract it. I had a small stroke during the surgery. It was 12 hours. They said I probably wouldn't know anybody. Told my husband that. So he didn't know what to expect. They thought I'd hemorrhage to death during the surgery. They almost stopped. I mean, it was a long ordeal. And I told wow. everybody afterwards, hey, I slept through it all. You guys are the ones that had right. it hard. So, but God saved my brain. Um, wow. He did take my legs for a while. I had to learn to walk again. It was an opportunity to see how people with disabilities are treated. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I went from the powerhouse businesswoman in my suit and pumps to, and being, you know, just being proud that I was independent. That was mm-hmm. something that I was proud of to being the most dependent person that I had ever known. My husband had to do everything for me. Yeah. 
So over the next several months, several months, I learned to walk again, and my left leg came back, but my right leg didn't come back completely. Hmm. And so I spent 08 learning to walk again and keeping my business alive because yep. that was when you know the big recession hit yeah good and, good timing oh my gosh you know it was um adversity on top of adversity yeah. but for me it was an opportunity to have something else to concentrate on not that we want you know bad things to happen to us but it gives us a different perspective mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. with that being you know twofold i had i had goals I had huge adversities that led me to big victories, and um, and it was amazing. And I still live with the limp. And um, as Gary said, you know, he mentioned the boating. That's one of the things mm-hmm. I enjoy the most. I don't have to walk, but I get mm-hmm. to feel the breeze, the sun. Yeah. You know, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. So it's been a journey, but it's um, I'm blessed. So for those who haven't had the pleasure, uh, Renee is currently we'll say the servant CEO in victory in time. And we'll, we'll obviously go into that. She's also, I mean, you just mentioned adversity, right? She's the author of soaring through adversity and she owned and ran victory Bolton specialty for over 30 years before selling. And she also is a speaker and facilitator. So if that's not enough of a mouthful, now we can get it. Um, and I'm retired. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. In quotations. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I kind of doubt that you're retired. <laughs> Not much. Not ready yet. Not ready yet. <laughs> so I want you to take us back, though, because you, you were in corporate America before. So just start there. Tell us what you were doing and things like that, and then we'll move into the entrepreneurship side. Okay. I, um, I started working at a bank when I was very young, your typical female role, and um, was leaving out of the trunk of my car. It was a mm. very um, trying time but was enjoying working in the bank but it just wasn't going to make ends meet met uh, a couple that was starting an industrial supply house where i was going to interview for accounting and the gentleman that i met was so forward thinking he said he asked me what i liked about the bank and i told him meeting people and building relationships and he looked at me and said how would you like to be one of the very first outside industrial saleswomen and yes, it was women back then. It wasn't mm-hmm. person. Yep. And I thought, let's try it. And he ended up being a great mentor. And that led me into a huge corporate fastener company, which when I went to work there, they didn't want any women. Corporate didn't. And the manager um, hid my gender for a while, <laughs> which was very interesting. Wow. Went to work one day because it was nuts and bolts. And I don't know if I should say this or not, but this is how it was back in the day is I went to work and they presented me with a t-shirt to wear on Fridays that said best screw in town. Wow. That was a moment. Yeah. That's a moment. <laughs> Holy moly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when Imagine I... Imagine that happening today. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I try to look at the positive side of it. You know, if you think about I was the first woman that was there, yeah. I don't think they, you know, in my mind, 
it was not deliberate it wasn't something that they just didn't think it through well and also having that advocate that believed in you enough to where they wanted to hide your gender so you could keep doing what you were doing Mm -hmm. uh, that speaks volumes right to what you were doing but also to that person saying hey we're going to bring this first person in and i'm going to do everything to keep her here and that was so wonderful to meet Jack in the beginning at the industrial supply house. It was so forward thinking. And then for the second gentleman to figure out a way to overcome and take the chance. Yep. And wow. um, that, that was huge. And But it wasn't long. I'd been there for about three years. And an opportunity with Sea Ray Boats came up and we were supplying them. And... We were their backup supplier, and they gave me the opportunity to become their full-time supplier, their number one position. And I took it to the manager, and they didn't stock the current product in the inventory, and that's what we would need to do. They said, we don't carry that kind of inventory in stock. And that's when the light bulb went off, and I thought, hey, I can. (laughs) So that was kind of my first. Um, the first time I was bit with an entrepreneurial yeah. spirit and, um, and started working on it from there. Did you have any exposure to entrepreneurship growing up? My parents owned, an, um, owned a textile plant in Marshville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. When I was very young, I watched them struggle. I watched them have joyous times. And I was really young, and I didn't realize at the time what an impact it would have on me. My parents were upstanding community citizens. They they really cared about Marshville. And but textiles being what it was, it was the time where imports were flooding the market. They mm-hmm. their major customer was in New York and they were trying to make them compete with what was coming in from overseas and then people started moving to, you know, Mexico to be able to be competitive and it was just a tough time and they they reinvested everything that they had back into um, their equipment to try to get more competitive, and then in the end, it just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And I watched them lose everything, mm-hmm. but I also watched them not file bankruptcy, but work out a payment plan and pay everybody that they owed. And and it's so amazing to me when I look back on that now, and over the years, at just what that taught me when I was probably 12, 13 years old. Yeah. It just it just it just stuck with me and then it was how I ran my business. Yeah. So for you to have seen that growing up, see them lose it, lose everything and experience that as a child, was there any apprehension of going off and actually doing your own thing? You know, when you're that age, you know, there's not a lot to fear. <laughs> you're yeah. starting out, you mess up, you can start over, you yeah. know. And I, and I think part of them losing, they didn't really lose. Mm. They, you know, they had a transition. Mm-hmm. And they held their, head, they held their heads high and moved forward and developed other careers. Um, my dad actually, when I started um, Victory Bolt in Charlotte in 88, My dad had gone back into textiles, and um, I said, why don't you come and work for me? And it was so Mm -hmm. funny. My dad said, I'm too old. And I'm like, and at that moment, I was like, you're not too old. But when I hit 50, I was like, that's when my dad said he was too old. Wow. But he did. 
he came in and he learned nuts and bolts. He worked in the warehouse. You know, he made deliveries. He, you know, and over the years managed the warehouse. We went from, it was he and I and um, one other person on inside sales. And we did everything together. And eventually, you know, he was manager, and we had 49 people across the country, so, you know, in the warehouse. Yeah. So he kind of held that end up, and um, it was amazing. It was amazing. And he was there. We would fight. Oh, my gosh. We would get into <laughs> it, you know. And then we would come out of the office laughing and talking, and the whole office would be completely empty. <laughs> Everybody would go to the warehouse, you know. But it, it was amazing. You know, he and I grew closer and closer, and, and we're still close to this day, and um, it was an amazing time. Man, I wish everybody could see this one, and I guess if we put it up on YouTube, yeah, it'll they be can. Up on YouTube. Yep. <laughs> but, like, you exude positivity. Like, you just, <laughs> as soon as you walked in the room, you exuded positivity, oh, which well, is a, a blessing. But, man, that attitude, and just... I'm so glad that you teed up the beginning of this thing the way that you did because you you came out of the gate with like some pretty severe adversity that you got hit with. Mm-hmm. And for you to wake up and like, hey, I was sleeping. I didn't, you know, right. <laughs> that attitude in and of itself like, oh, good. It's not Alzheimer's. Like, wow. I mean, there's a lot to that. And I also understand why the Sea Ray boat was so important. There are a lot of brands out there, but now I really understand. Good for you. So keep going, man. But I just had to interject that because it's like, man, you just kind of radiate this positivity. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, so take us through that transition of the current company wasn't going to carry the parts and you had that idea of, Mm -hmm. well, I can... So take us from there to actually creating your own thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I I had signed a no compete, mm-hmm. so which was something I forgot about. Oh, <laughs> and um, so had to pivot. Okay, what do you do? And I knew that you know I was a waitress in high school. I could go back to that, you know, and go back to the bank. There'd be some things I could do. But I had an opportunity to go to work for a nut and bolt house in um, Greenville, South Carolina. So I relocated, which was outside of my territory, so I could be in the industry. Yep. And mm. um, went to work there and worked there for a year and learned so much different types of fasteners, you know, because that's the key is to, you know, learn a lot about a mm-hmm. different, you know, a different product mix, different types of customers, so that you can keep your portfolio diversified, yep. your customer base. And so after that year, during toward the end, I was going back to Knoxville and, um, you know, looking for locations. And during all that process, I had met two gentlemen that worked for different fastener companies in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hmm. And we had this idea together. Let's do this together. So it was um, kind of um, it was a good situation because one of them had relationships with vendors and was great at purchasing. And he worked for a company that did electronic fasteners. Then there was another guy that had um, financial background, and then I had the sales experience, and um, so we came together and um, with three thousand dollars and a credit and a high interest credit card was how yeah. it all started. In 1988. This was actually a little bit earlier than okay. that. Okay. And and that that happened in Knoxville where I was 36 okay. percent owner, and um, when you're 36 percent owner, you 
don't have a lot of control mm. when someone has 51%. Yep. And um, he was making personal decisions that just was not working out. Mm-hmm. And um, so I worked it out to have a branch. And um, ultimately, I saw they were going to go. They weren't going to make it. Mm. Okay. And I just felt that. And I was not going to go down with the ship because I'd worked too hard with it. So got the branch and came back home as close as I wanted to get to Marshville. I actually did move back in with my parents for a little while while my house sold in, in Knoxville. You know, you do what you have to do. That's right. It wasn't ideal, but it was not, I wasn't living out of the trunk of my car like I had before. <laughs> so um, started here, and um, it was absolutely amazing. We were able to bring some of the customers back from the Knoxville area. A little, I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> But when I saw they weren't able to supply, you know, what do you do? You jump right. in there and you help because, again, that was C-Ray. Right. And um, so I would ship product direct. And, you know, we had another C-Ray location that opened in Fort Mill, South Carolina. That was enough to pay my overhead. So, you know, God just took care of me along the way and put the put everything in place that needed to be in place to help me be successful. It was actually right down the road from here on Old Pineville Road. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 3,000 square foot warehouse. Lots of industrial stuff on Old Pineville Road. And it used to be all up and down here, too. It's it's crazy, the changes that's happened over these years. Why Charlotte? What brought you here? Mostly because of the plant that was put in Fort Mill. Mm. You know, I knew all the industrial um, opportunities that was here. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that I needed to be close, like where I could um, hmm. deliver or ship to South Carolina, you know, that kind of thing, because service was everything. You know, back then, you know, it was something to have your own truck. You know, I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's how old school we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So it was about the placement of it and being close enough to my parents. I really did have the need and I wanted to come back home. Yeah. And um, did. And so was that transition of you getting your own branch and that evolution is that what turned into then victory bolts yes i um as they deteriorated more and more i got an attorney here they started negotiating and um, i became sole owner here which basically didn't mean a lot because by the time all that happened they had been using my money to pay their bills and but that's when the the moment came into my mind of exactly what my dad had done and I talked mm. with all the vendors, and I'm like, you know, I can file bankruptcy and start over. Or, which is what I knew they wanted to do and what I wanted to do, was I set up a payment plan and paid all them off. And in turn, they kept me open on open account so I could continue to buy and supply the customer. And it was a win-win for both of us, and that's how I've learned over the years to negotiate. You know, find that win-win for both people or or teams or whatever it is and you can move forward and that's what we did and um, kept all of my customers the vendors stayed in place and it also was almost like a disguise because the name was similar I came up with the name originally and I kept a similar name so that the customers didn't know that all of a sudden I was standing on my own two feet and didn't have a branch Mm-hmm. And and the vendors were able to leave, give me the same lines without me having to start over as a new company, um, which was a big deal. Yeah. You know, there were lines that I had gone in, manufacturers that I had gone in and gotten approved. You know that I needed to keep in order to keep those customers. So, um, what were the nuances between the original company name and Victory? 
The one oh. there was Victory Bolt. And I had learned over the years and coming into this area, especially after working in Greenville, South Carolina, there was and working in the industrial supply company, there was a lot of other products that yeah. I could supply, so it became Victory Bolt and Specialty. Oh. <laughs> because the service part of it was so huge and I quickly learned to find what nobody else could find mm-hmm. or sell what nobody else wanted to sell. Yep. Because I had to make myself different. Right. So you had made a comment earlier of you were able to move forward the way that you wanted to. Mm-hmm. In your mind, what did that look like? Well, I could be competitive. I could, in my mind, I saw what the companies I had worked for did incorrectly. So I could learn from what they had done wrong and do it in a better way. Mm -hmm. And me and my young mind thought, hey, I can do this better than you can. (laughs) (laughs) My competitive edge taken over. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, I want to keep moving forward, but I want to focus a little bit on this became a 100% woman-owned business, Mm -hmm. especially in the industrial uh, area, right? Like that industry... Back then, I mean, the story you said about the T-shirt paints mm-hmm. the picture well enough. Yes. Um, yeah. What were some of those hurdles as a business owner that you face of a, a female owning a woman-owned business in a male-dominated industry? Being taken seriously in some cases because I was also young. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Which is a, a hurdle in itself. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. It is. And there's this one standout moment where there was a customer in China Grove and he has some um, seriously late payables hanging out there and I went up there to collect money and he told me that I could wait a little longer I could probably just get the money from my daddy wow that was a moment that was a moment (laughs) Um, I wasn't sure how to handle it Mm. because my first thought was anger you know especially knowing my past and you know everything that had happened and um so, you know, and I don't recall what I said, but I know I left with a check. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Um, and it wasn't for the full amount, but he made an effort where he set up a payment plan with me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just kind of something, a win-win for both of us, yep. you know. And um, so it was, I had a lot of um, people say things about me that weren't true, my competitors. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, there was another boat company that I was getting little bits and pieces of business from him to show him I could do it. And he had been doing business with the company for a long time. And they noticed that their business was, the sales with this customer was dropping off more. And he called and this competitor called the guy and said, you must be placing some of your orders with the girl that's got legs up to her neck. Wow. And that was so much to my benefit, as a lot of these instances were, because this guy was so stand up, he called me and switched the account that day. <laughs> Love it. And it was absolutely amazing. They became one of my customers for years and years, <laughs> yeah. and another boat company. And um, so, but I think too, my philosophy was don't buy from me because I'm a woman owned company. Buy from me because I'm competitive, 
not low bid, but competitive, service-oriented. I will provide you with the best quality. And if it helps you that I'm a certified woman on business, then we qualify for that too. Yeah. yeah. I didn't want it to be an entitlement mm-hmm, sort right. of situation. Um, and, you know, that didn't matter to a lot of people. One of my um, early customers um, here in Charlotte was Duke Power. Mm. They helped me a lot and their referrals, mm. and I learned how to work with engineering. Yep. It was really a, a good stepping stone. And again, started out with there was one part that they needed that had a nut, a bolt, this crazy washer that you had to assemble it, and then you had to put it in a tiny plastic bag and then put 50 of those in a box of 100 and then put them in a, in a wooden box. I did it. <laughs> I did it. I did it. Yep. You know, it was it was a start. Yep. And uh, I think that's what all new business owners need. You don't start up here. Just like when the gentleman said, do you want to be the first outside woman-owned, I mean, uh, out, first outside uh, woman in industrial sales? It didn't start there. Yeah. I worked in the warehouse. I learned how to drive the fork truck. I went across the street to learn how stuff was used at the, um, you know, the cutting tools were used in the machine shop. And you got to be willing to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not easy, mm-hmm. but you got to have an open mind to the possibilities. Yep. Yeah, we were talking before of the, the concept of crawl before you walk, walk before you run. That's right. And it's exactly what you just painted out, right? You don't start with this massive multi-million dollar business. You mm-hmm. start by taking one step at a time. That's it. That's it. One opportunity at a time. So you started with this idea, I can do this better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is kind of a common theme, don't you think? Oh, oh yes. yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. And sometimes it's a little bravado, sometimes it's a little bit of youth, and sometimes it's a whole lot of yeah. grit and differentiation. You need a little bit of ignorant confidence yeah. when you're starting out entrepreneurship, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think sometimes you can put too much thought in it, and um, mm-hmm. and it becomes overwhelming. Yeah, you're you're never going to take that first step. Take yeah. action. Yes. Take action. So I want to go back to in that journey. I mean, man, Charlotte was way different in 1988 than it is now. There was 28 <laughs> fashion companies in Charlotte when I came here. Really? It was crazy. That's when you're talking about differentiate. Yeah. That's what I had to do, and because of Sea Ray and because of the marine industry and that product that my original boss um, at the corporation didn't want to stock, I was one of the few that did. And that was kind of a launch, you know, a launch pad for us. And going into the specialty arena, not just with different products, but with specialty materials. And um, it was, and plus, it was more expensive than what everybody else was selling too which didn't hurt on the sales side and it was a little bit more specialty at that time it's not now but at that time so the margins were a little bit better and uh did the service and um it was fun (laughs) it was fun i mean think about it's easy to see the patterns looking backwards right Mm -hmm. but just the nuance of being able to to kind of go in the the wake using the C-Ray, but in the wake of Victory Bolt, but differentiating through and specialty, mm-hmm. being able to have kind of both of those things. I mean, that was really actually quite masterful, you know. <laughs> um, I want you to think back to 
you know, back those years, because you sold in 2019, is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you had a nice run. I want to think, I, I want to hear from you more about two things. One is you were building the company and the company culture. You've differentiated in the marketplace, but then I want to know how did you differentiate inside the culture from the guys that are wearing t-shirts that, you know, we, you just described earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I want to hear about that. And then I also want to hear a little bit about what were some of the, the difficult times that you didn't foresee that you had to kind of work through and how do you how did you do that so differentiation and culture building and what you did within that company because I know everybody listening to this that's running a company that's one of the things that they struggle with communication maintaining culture hiring and and retaining the right people etc so I have a feeling you have some thoughts on that <laughs> I do. It's, um, you know, going from the industrial supply house into corporate America. Then when I went to the company in South Carolina, the man that owned that taught me, well, he didn't teach me. I saw every crooked thing a business owner could do. It was mm. absolutely crazy. And, uh, and it was for, it was a total construction um, supplier so that was a really unique situation a totally different mindset mm -hmm. more male dominated than I thought I could ever experience mm. but it taught me a lot it taught me what I wanted and what I didn't want so I wanted the culture you know you hear the term um, like family yeah it was that but it was also my goal to make everybody feel like they were somebody. Mm. I remember there was some, you know how you hear people talk and, you know, somebody said that they weren't as important. So I remember having a meeting where I had the big whiteboard and, you know, putting myself up there and then putting the other people up there and then going to the truck driver and just telling them, you know, I don't get to make the sale if Roger doesn't deliver the product, you know, mm -hmm. and just going through there, how it was completely a one organization. It was not anybody more important than the other. The other thing I did was, is we shared details a lot more than what I know companies do to this day. I mean, we literally, if people had a budget, they knew what the budget was, but they also know how they performed. I think one of the biggest things that we did is what I called share the wealth. Hmm. We had pools of money based on what a department did, based on profit. Okay. So if it was something in the warehouse, you know, a purchasing agent, cost of goods, inventory turns, you know, the things that they controlled is what they were paid for. Yep. And then they would work with other people in the organization to make sure that happened, you know, first in, first out, whatever yeah. the case may be. So we all worked together as a team. And at the end of each month, we all had a huddle, you know, what we did right, what we didn't do right, mm -hmm. um, where we could learn from. And I used to tell them that, you know, you may not like the numbers, but there's freedom in the numbers. If you don't know it, you can't fix it. So, yeah. you know, at the end of the month, if something didn't go well, it wasn't that they were in trouble because it didn't go well. It's how can we do better next month? Yeah. And we all paid the price for it. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was it was fun. I mean, mm. God, I keep saying that, but it was so much fun. <laughs> I miss it. I miss it. Yeah. 
it was i mean i can even go a step further we actually shared portions of the financial statements with the employees mm -hmm. as well which i know is pretty unique mm -hmm. um if it pertained to them you can't hit a target if you don't see the target you know that's you it. can't play darts blindfolded right. mm -hmm. so that's what we did so we could see and on-time deliveries you know that was a piece for everybody because if everybody didn't do yep. their job then the order was not going to go out on time and we had goals for that so i'm curious where where you learned to do those things was it mentorship was it reading was it trial and error how did you do that because it's pretty unique especially back then i was a member of a forum group which helped me a lot because it was other business owners yep. that they had done a lot of the trial and error so i was able to learn from their mistakes and also piggyback on what they did right and it was an outside um, look to the inside, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I had some really unusual circumstances to, you know, a lady having a stroke and falling out at her desk. And, wow, wow. You know, it was just a horrendous situation, and I was trying to work through that. Mm -hmm. Took it to the forum group, and they knew the perfect attorney, and I had, you know, I mm -hmm. had done everything right, but doing everything right was I did the moral things. You know, I had... You know transitioned her to a, a, a different job and made that job as easy as possible you know that kind of thing mm. but this attorney led me to making the right decision as I told her so I could lay down and sleep at night yeah. and um, so that was huge I took a lot of classes I call myself a lifelong learner a lot of classes um, a lot of reading and back then we're talking about digging into catalogs and you know, right. Right. <laughs> reference documents and yep. um, test reports even um, for some of the new products I also used um, ideas that I had along the way to differentiate myself from different products maybe there was a product that was out there on the market and was available because I mean when you distribute a standard product yeah everybody's got nuts and bolts so yeah. what do you do different and just like many other you know there's so many competitors out there for one particular product I differentiated myself by tweaking it getting with the manufacturer making it a little bit better and for example um, we called one product that we did um, Eagle Shield hmm. it's a little different um, and it became People talked about it. We want Eagle Shield, and uh, it was pretty cool. It yeah. was pretty, and we trademarked it and all that kind of stuff. Um, so Gary's smiling and laughing as you're answering this question because I'm not sure if we've heard anything more consistently than two of the things you just said on this podcast. Yeah. One being a lifelong learner, and yeah. the second being surround yourself with other people, peer-to-peer -peer groups, yeah. think forum groups, things like that. Outside perspective. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, good for you. It's a very consistent trend throughout the guests on this podcast, so that's why Gary was, was cracking up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm laughing because we're pretty picky about who we have in on this podcast because we want people with humility. Hmm. Otherwise, you're just going to hear show reels and you're never going to hear the behind-the-scenes reels and all the stuff that where the learning really takes place. It doesn't take place on the podium. No, it does not. It does not. And, um, and you know, one of the things I say is um, I went to UT for a little while, but um, I'm from the school of hard knocks. And, you know, you learn it on the ground. You, you know, boots on the ground, you get it done. And um, so you've got to figure out where to find it. And the outside perspective is, 
always best. And you've got to be willing to take it. Yeah. You know, and dish it out. You got to be open. You got to be open to be in one of those groups. Um, I'm just curious because there are all kinds of different groups out there, and you, you call it a forum. Was it like a pinnacle forum, or what was the the this was, flavor of that one? Um, this was Renaissance Executive Forum. Oh, sure, mm-hmm. Renaissance. All right, cool. It was, and um, I was fortunate enough to be what they call the uh, Friday group, and um, we were some of the largest business owners in the group, and um, which got a, got me in the room with peers of my size, some larger, yeah. but I was the only woman. There was a few women came and, and went, but I think they were more into it for the networking you yeah, know, possibilities yeah. from what they were in. But with me being in the industrial field, it was more similar to what men do. Right. So I was able to gather more information from that standpoint. And, um, and they didn't go easy on me, trust me. But still, <laughs> some of them are still friends today. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. You wouldn't have wanted them to go easy on you anyway. Absolutely not. I wouldn't have learned anything if That's they had right. done that. Yeah. yeah. So you, I'm curious about your growth, right? Because mm-hmm. you take this company over, essentially make it 100% your own, and it turns into one of the largest woman-owned industrial businesses in the entire Southeast. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about what you had to either put in place or processes you did to be able to accomplish such, such consistent growth over the years. Well, there's a quote in my book that says, one woman show will only get you so far. Mm. So up until I met my husband, I did just about everything. I was working myself to death. In mm-hmm. fact, when I met him, he's like, tell me about your dreams. And I started talking about work. He said, that's work. What's your dreams? I'm like, I don't have any. <laughs> yeah. mm. I work all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, at that point, that's when we really... We got married, and um, he came to work for me, and um, we made it our own because that was also an 08. We had only been married for a little over a year when we saw that big brain oh, tumor. Wow. wow. So talk about in sickness and in health, that right. man got a dose early on. Yeah, no kidding. And, um, and then when you think about he had only been at the company for a year and 08 hits, and mm-hmm. we had, like I said, we had 49 employees across the country. And we went down to eight, including he and I. So mm. from that perspective, it was basically a start over. Yeah. yeah. So what I experienced from trying to oversee everything was I felt like I was operating a kindergarten, you know, with all the employees and that kind of thing. And I had really gotten removed from what I like to do best, which mm. was... The purchasing, you know, working with them, the actual nuts and bolts, but most of all working with the one-on-one with the inside employees that were up front um, with me Mm. and sales and building the relationships with the customers. That's what I had been missing, and that's when I realized it. There was also a challenge, though. I'm in a wheelchair, so I Mm. experienced how will people um, view me. right. And it was in my heart to again let them see me as if she can do it i can do it too and to take me seriously Mm. which they did they accepted me wholeheartedly and during that process ray and i did a a dividing plan where he took over the operations and um, he oversaw the initial financial statement 
with the with the um, CFO until you know I, I got the bigger picture but then I could concentrate on the sales and yep. do what I do best so at that point we were mm-hmm. able to I mean we were even looking at you know what kind of toilet paper we were buying mm-hmm. you know I mean it went from cash flow happy to nothing mm-hmm. and um, so with that it was a start over and it was so much fun and you have nothing to lose at that point you're yeah. you're a start over so we really divided that and we worked on the processes we spent money on equipment um, to make us more innovative we bought equipment to modify bolts we became somewhat of a manufacturer in the back mm. we bought packaging equipment we actually ended up with 27 employees and having more sales and more profit than we did before. Really? We did. We did. It was uh, it was amazing. We were able to, with me getting back to kind of like when I had the partners, when we grew so fast in Knoxville, mm-hmm. I concentrated on the sales. They had their concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, it grew that fast again, mm-hmm. and we we brought new customers on. We grew the customers we had, and subsequently, you know, during the time that I sold, we were at the top of our game, and we had um, a lot of people trying to purchase us. Most of them were competitors, and I'd automatically go, "Okay, no, that's like going over to the evil side. <laughs> we're right. not doing that." Yeah. So I kept telling everybody no, and then this company came to be and. I threw out a number, and they like, I think we can do that. And I thought, I thought my number was too high that you wouldn't <laughs> want to do that. And um, so. So what what led to the consideration of selling? Just a little bit deeper into that. Of you had gone through basically the whole rebuild, right? And yes. getting the company back to where it was, I mean, better than what it was, right? More Absolutely. more lean with higher revenue. So what led to the idea of saying, oh, maybe I am going to sell? We had hired um, what is called a turnaround expert. He had worked at Bank of America and had learned to go into companies that were their clients and turn them around so mm-hmm. that they wouldn't end up you know, defaulting on loans and that kind of thing. Well, Paul's a lot like me. I could do that better than they can. So he started his own and um, started going into various customers. And because of where we were at, he spent a lot of time with us. And then as we grew, he wasn't there full time, but he saw an opportunity because that's what he did. Mm-hmm. Was go in, turn them around, and then sell them. Mm-hmm. And um, which was never my intention. There's um, my husband is like, what do you want to do? Sell nuts and bolts? Do you got one foot in the grave? Well, yeah, probably, because <laughs> that's all I'd ever done, and yeah. that was all I'd ever thought about. Yeah, remember that? You know, tell me yeah. your dreams, and it was all about work. Right. Um, but he. Um, he talked us into investing into um, certified financial statements for three years prior. Sure. You know, I mean, we spent a lot of money on that, but I highly encourage, you know, anybody that's considering getting into that age of their company, because where when we did determine that we might have a buyer, you know, everybody was saying it's a twelve to eighteen month process. Yep. Mm-hmm. It probably seven months. We had signed the deal. Wow. I mean, it, and if it had been any longer, I'd have had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a big was, deal. Stressor. Yeah. It, oh, it was terrible. And one of the things that I want to share at some point um, in my life is the emotional side of selling. Yeah. 
because everybody prepares you for what you need to do to sell the company, but what it does to you emotionally is a whole nother ball game. And there's not a lot out there, yeah. you know, to help people understand that. Mm-hmm. And because uh, it was hard for me, it really was. Yeah, yeah we know somebody who uh, the aftermath of selling the business went to the hospital mm-hmm. because of the yep. just the health the impact of, of it. Of almost, what do I do now? Oh yeah, and who am I? Yeah. I've, yes. Yeah, because that's your identity. Oh yes, that um, separates your who from your do. I'd never accomplished that. Mm-hmm. And I encourage the women that I work with now to do that. Yeah. You know, one of my biggest shockers was when I went in and I met somebody, and the person that was introducing us said, This is Renee Brazile, owner, and then just stopped. And I realized at that point that was who I was to people. This is Renee Brazile, she owns Victory Bolton Specialty. Yeah, yeah. That was constant. That was constant. And even to them. Yeah. Because they just dropped that off. And then I'm like, that person that you said went to the hospital. Oh, my God. Right. You know, who am I now? Yep. And then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And I'm standing on the back porch. And I'm looking at the water. And my next thought was, thank you, God. Because we would have been another start over. The company that I sold Mm. to was absolutely huge and they've grown and they've grown and they're a great company. They did everything they committed to do during the sale, after the sale, promptly. I mean, Paul said he'd never seen a sale go that smooth. Great guys. Um, They didn't have to lay off anybody. Wow. Everybody kept their job. And that was one of my biggest things when we were talking about, you know, the company that bought us was similar culture, keep my people. You know, that was most important to me. And that was probably one of the hardest parts of selling was because we were so open with the employees, Mm. I felt like I was cheating on them Mm. because I had this big, huge secret that I was carrying around and these people were walking around Mm. and I'm lying about it and I felt so uncomfortable, which is another reason I'm so glad that we had made the preparation we did so that it didn't drag on so long. Yep. So then at what point did you wake up with the idea of I'm going to write a book there's a lady by the name of Fabi Pressler oh yeah and she owns Spark Publications and three maybe two years before I sold the company there was um, an event for women in Union County and they asked me to speak and the title was um, Overcoming Obstacles Mm-hmm. which I said, a.k.a. my mess is my message. <laughs> because <laughs> it was about the journey. And when I got through that night, Fabi came up to me and said, you need to write a book. Mm-hmm. So at that moment when I'm standing out there on that porch and you know I'm, I'm thinking, oh, and Paul used to tell me, when you asked me about facilitating the sale, mm-hmm. he used to say, Renee, what if there's another 9-11? Like, would you stop? I cannot live like that because that's just not my positive mindset. But that's what a money guy does. You're at the top of your game. Now let's look at it. And um, so I I called Paul, and when they made the announcement that everything was shutting down with Cohen, I called him. I said, I guess we were just talking about that that another 9-11, you know. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he had to say, I told you so. But um, so... All during that moment, all of a sudden, I heard Fabi's voice, 
you need to write a book. Hmm. So I spent COVID writing that book and I journaled so I had some stuff and um but it was difficult because it started out in my mind to be more about business. Mm. But I realized that my personal life and my business life was so intertwined and how one adversity contributed to the other, just like the gentleman going to the hospital. Right. You know, stress is real Mm -hmm. and it affects your entire body. And, you know, I felt like if I was going to use this book and help other people, then they needed to know the reality of owning their own company and that it's not you know people say all the time oh you own your own company you're your own boss well no <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't work that way you have a whole bunch of bosses don't oh, you oh absolutely <laughs> every customer every employee um, everybody so you know i looked at it from that perspective and um just didn't know where to go from there so that's what i did hmm. so gary and i Actually, two days ago, we released it, yeah. right? Or yesterday? We just re- um, released it this morning. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's Wednesday, <laughs> sorry. It's one of those weeks. So it's like, what day is it? Um, so we just released an episode where we talked about Gary's process of writing the book hmm. and trying to get it published and things like that. So can you give us a peek behind the curtain of what that experience was like for you? Well, when I was going through it, you know, and I would talk to Fabi because realizing how much it was intertwined you know there's that book is real Mm -hmm. and i was i went through a period of domestic violence Mm. so that's in there and when you're writing a book it depends on what portion you're in i believe is how much it affects you personally and that was a a hard time in my life Mm -hmm. so that took me longer yeah i mean it took me to nightmares i mean it was it was deep but I also learned some things coming out of it that, you know, from writing down and, and, you know, reliving it from a different perspective and then looking on, you know, that led to me volunteering and being on the board of directors for Turning Point from the time it was a small house with three bedrooms to where it is now with 20 rooms and wow. private, you know, private baths. I mean, it's, it's just totally different to where you didn't speak about domestic violence to now it's you know you talk about it it's there it's it's real um so and then there was times when i got to relive some of the best times of my life with you know these customers that you know when we were talking about how i learned some of this i had some really good customers that would tell me i would one of my things is what what do you need and they would give me their problems you know this is what i need this is what i need and and if you could do this and that's how i approached it so when they would give me those ideas that's what i would run with and so when i was reliving that writing the book it was just it was amazing and um and i put their names in there they they meant a lot to me and still do Mm -hmm. so you know and then that's when i met sheree because i needed a structural editor how do i put this all together Mm. and tie the business part into the personal life part. And that's where we came up with the um, life lessons to learn. And it became leading the eagle way. Because I don't know if you guys noticed, but everything I have has eagles on it. I love it. My life verse is Isaiah 40:31, And um, which the eagle is on the book. And uh, it was... Um, 
it was a challenge because I remember walking through holding that book and it was amazing because you got to think about when you write a book it's not that fast paced right you know there are moments like I said when there you know it goes easier but it's not a fast paced process like Mm -hmm. it is running a business so that was a little difficult for me and it seemed like it was taking forever and everybody said it didn't take you that long but it just seemed like it (laughs) yeah so I remember walking around holding that book going oh my gosh you know this is amazing I actually did do something in the last year and a half (laughs) (laughs) where it seemed like I didn't but um these ladies were wonderful to work with and um well in the the idea that you actually put those things in the book is also empowering, right? To all the people in a similar situation that can resonate with what you're being vulnerable enough to publish, you're, there's a ripple effect that you don't even know mm-hmm. about, right? You don't see it, and yet it's, I'm sure you hear stories of, of people reaching out, but that ripple effect of you being vulnerable is very powerful. Well, when I would tell my husband, there's nobody going to read this book. Who's going to read this book? And he'd say, <laughs> our grandchildren. If, yeah, if right. just somebody in the family, or they're yeah. going to know who you were, yeah, which is amazing. And then um, we've got six kids together and twelve grandchildren, and my daughter has three. And so, <laughs> my daughter, my granddaughter, the sixteen, she actually did her book report on my book. Oh, how cool! That's it amazing. was amazing. <laughs> and then they would send me videos of the little ones and them reading the book every night. You know, a chapter of the book or whatever portion of it yeah. it was. I mean, oh. it was absolutely amazing. And uh, so, you know, I've heard that and I've I've gotten some feedback from different people about about the book. And um, which is one of the reasons I wanted to like put the domestic violence in there because I learned a long time ago mm-hmm. that when you talk about a problem, it's healing. Mm-hmm. It's also, you know, it opens people up that they want to talk to you, which is healing to them. And right. it's just a back and forth that, you know, when you show somebody the reality of it's okay. That was something that I think has resonated with me, and I hope it does with other people. When I talk about that inspiration thing is... You know, people's thought process for domestic violence is that's not going to happen to me. Mm. Right, of course. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's had all kinds of stigmas attached to it over the years. And um, But when I would tell people that I was a victim of domestic violence and they would see me standing there, they'd be like, it's okay for me to talk about. You know, because so many people would hide because they didn't want to, they they cared about what other people would think or see them as weak or whatever. And I felt like that if if I allowed myself to go through that, and there, that there had to be a purpose for it, and that was for me to tell my story to help other people. And um, and the same thing with the you know the disabilities. I think things happen for a reason, and that's why now with the book. The net proceeds goes to the um, foundation that my husband and I have started called the Victory Advantage. Mm. His um, brother had Downs. Mm. And Davey was a magnificent um, individual. And I've been on the board for Johnny and Friends Disability Ministry for a while. And when I first was in the wheelchair, you know, Ray and I would go through the airport. It was really eye-opening because I'd mm. just gotten out of the uh, rehabilitation hospital still couldn't walk and we went to Mississippi to see his family over there in Cajun country and, mm. <laughs> and um, people wouldn't talk to me 
They wouldn't make eye contact. They would ask great questions, and he'd say, ask her. Or I would go, I'm mm, here, yeah, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And I'm like, this is so wrong. Mm-hmm. And so then I became, you know, a board member for John. Well, I started volunteering and just heard what these people were experiencing and could feel it. It just led me to want to do more. And with what Ray had experienced, it just felt like this is what we needed to do with this season of our lives. Mm. So I'm working on the website now, which writing a book was easier than doing the website. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm in the middle of both. Oh, jeez. <laughs> At the same time. You know, it's funny. Without you even knowing it, you, you have highlighted four of the seven weapons that I talk about in silencing imposter syndrome. Four. Oh my gosh. And probably the fifth one, I'll probably you probably do it because it's about gratitude, gratitude journal. So I, I do mm-hmm. that, but and you said you journal, so that would actually be five of the seven. Right. But you talked early on about when when the, that first guy came to you and said, "What is it about the bank that you love to do?" Right? Mm-hmm. We call that thrive wither. What do you? What makes you come alive? Mm-hmm. Versus strengths weaknesses, and you did that again when you pivoted. Which is really, it's so simple, but it's very, very important that we focus on the stuff that actually makes us come alive versus the stuff that we may be good at, but it's draining our tank. So I just thought that was really, really powerful. And then you said shine, you know, spotlight it. I, I call it shine a spotlight on it, but expose the stuff. Do you know Tana Green in town? Uh, she had 10,000 W-2 employees, and she told me, she was on our podcast, one of the first three. Yeah, I think number I think. two, yeah. Um, and I think it was then that she said, Gary, I don't know what I'm doing. I said, Tana, are you kidding me? Why would you say that? And she said, I only have a two-year secretarial degree. Holy moly. Well, she had also talked, and she wrote a book called uh, creating world difference and she had a child out of wedlock at 15 couldn't tell anybody that in the south gets married the guy beats her up puts her in the hospital domestic violence walks away with her i mean abandons her and the baby she put a spotlight on that but she was also in women's you know like forum groups but she was in wpo couldn't talk about that among those powerhouse ladies but she finally did and she got free, and she set a whole bunch of other people free. Yeah. So I just I think that's really cool. Focus on serving versus how you are perceived. Like you exude your whole story talks about serving. I love it. And then find somebody outside the jar to help you read the label. I mean, like that outside perspective. I mean, like boom, 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 boom. <laughs> I love your terminology. <laughs> I need to be better at that. Oh, you you are a powerhouse. Oh, I mean, you. Dad Gummit. Yeah. Thank you, Cherie. <laughs> <laughs> um, we didn't even get to what more of what you're doing today, right? Your your background story is just so unbelievable and has so many nuggets. So, before we sign off, I at least want to give you a moment to be able to fill the listeners yeah. in on on what are you doing today and where can they find you? Okay, I am um, starting to do some speaking, motivational speaking. Done a few going to be speaking at Wingate College. I think it's on November the 12th. Cool. And um, going to be a panelist next week um, for the Union County Chamber on unlearning, mm. which is going to be very interesting. 
but through the speaking I want to be able to promote the book the foundation yeah and working towards because the forum group was so successful for me starting victory circles mm, okay. and the first group is going to be concentrating on women in the um, male-dominated industries which mm. is a lot of industries yeah. but you know kind of in the industrial pocket kind of yeah. thing and um, you know just creating a group of influential women that can help each other grow and learn mm. and the the foundation is it is like opening a can of worms there's just so much need and we're concentrating right now in Union County and um, that is going to be um, housing neighborhoods that are made affordable for people that are highly functioning with disabilities that what we've learned is there's a lot of especially now with aging population where they have a child with disability or an adult with disabilities that may have a job but it's you know the the way the mm -hmm. cost of living is they can't afford to live on their own but they have every capability to do that mm -hmm. so they would be the good candidate for that the other piece to that is offering grants so that people can either live continue to live in the home they're in because what we've learned is the ADA provides the basics if mm -hmm. that yeah. and yep. so we want to go in there and find out what the person needs and serve them accordingly where they're at so that they can live with dignity and uh, so and the other piece to that would be we're learning is transportation for people with disabilities and also been working with other nonprofits for employment so just giving them a full independent life like we all have and yeah that they deserve that's amazing and we'll put links to different websites and things okay. like that in, yeah, in the show the, notes as well that's but you can the, share it yeah that's the victoryadvantage.org victoryintime.com and there is a reneebrazelet.com thank you so much this has been fantastic thank you all thank you for having great me. job renee thank, thank you. you thank you what a pleasure